You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. So glad to have you here in person. I'm glad to see your faces. For the last, I'm trying to remember now exactly, I think it's 10 weeks or so, 11 weeks perhaps. I've been preaching in this room, but there haven't been anybody in here. So it's great to see your faces. You know, uh, I think about what Paul said to Thessalonians. He said, you know, I've been separated for you for a time in person, but I've longed to see your face. He said, we've been together in spirit, but I've longed to see your faces. And uh, uh, that resonates with me, and I know it resonates with Pastor Mike and the other uh, leaders here. So we're glad to see your face. I'm sure you guys are encouraged. You know, there's something about corporate worship where you're hearing each other sing to the Lord, and that encourages us in our worship. So uh, this morning, just a few uh, brief announcements before we get into our study. One is we're going to be taking communion at the end of service together. So if you haven't done so already, make sure you get your communion supplies. If you need gluten-free stuff, we've got it over there as well. And if you haven't gotten those, make sure you get it. It's right here at the entrance to the sanctuary. We'll get those for you. Second thing is about giving. So our giving is, there's two ways to do it. We don't pass a plate. We especially wouldn't right now just to reduce contact. So we're not passing a plate, but there is an offering box uh, near the sound booth in the back there where you can make your uh, tithes and donations as offerings of worship. But you can also do that um, online at whitefieldschurch.com. That's how everybody's been doing it the last several weeks, and we're going to continue that. So whitefieldschurch.com. Last thing is that uh, when we exit today, we're going to ask you to not exit the way that you came in, but exit through the back. We have an area there for fellowship, which if you haven't seen it yet, really great. We look forward to using it. And that's called the commons. So there where we have tables set up, you're going to exit that way, and there's a back door. So we're just trying to create the flow of traffic here. And uh, that's it. So if you'd please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9. We're currently in a series. You know, one of the things we do here at Whitefields, if you aren't familiar with what we do, is we like to study through books of the Bible. So right now we're in a series in which we're studying through the books of 1 and 2 Kings. 1 and 2 Kings. And we've called this series Desiring the Kingdom. Desiring the kingdom, because as we look at these books, which cover 400 years of Israel's history, the most important thing you can know about them is that they point forward to the eternal king and his promised kingdom, Jesus Christ. And so as we talk about the king and the kingdoms, and this whole concept, we're looking forward to Jesus, the true king, and his eternal kingdom. So the title of today's message is, In the Zone. In the zone. I hope that you guys are in the zone today, but I hope you're in the right zone because we're going to talk about that. What we see in the life of King Solomon is that sometimes, right, there's different zones we can be in, and sometimes your comfort zone can actually be a dangerous place to be. That's what we see in the life of Solomon today. Because here's why when you're in your comfort zone, it's really easy to drift into the danger zone. But here's the good news. The good news is that God shows us the way out of the danger zone and into the hope zone. I I know you're like, hope zone is not a thing. Well, now it is. And that's where God's going to show us the way to if we will heed his word. So let's bow our heads and pray as we begin our study. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for the blessing of gathering together as your people around your word, Lord, to worship you. And we ask, Lord, this morning, speak to us and give us hearts that listen. Give us hearts that hear and take your words, receive them, believe them by faith, trust in them and cling to them and put them into practice, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so how many of you have ever hit the snooze button on your alarm, right? That's everybody. Everybody's hit the snooze button. Um, I use my phone for my alarm to get up, and here's the thing that I always find weird about my phone. I don't know if yours is the same way, but here's my phone. The snooze button is so much bigger than the button that turns off the alarm. So it's almost like they're encouraging me to keep hitting the snooze button, which I do. Sometimes I actually hit it by accident. So I'll like hit the snooze button when I intend to turn it off. And then sometimes I'll be like, well, I already hit it. So I guess I'll just go back to sleep for eight minutes, right? So how many of you, I'll ask you this, when you set your alarm at night, you actually calculate into like when you're going to wake up, like how many times you're going to probably hit the snooze button uh, before you decide to actually get up. And how about this one? How many of you have have actually missed an appointment or a meeting or you've been late to work or school because you hit the snooze button too many times. Again, it's probably all of us at some point. Why? Because your bed is really comfortable and it's really easy to stay in your bed and it feels good. And that's why when there's something really important that I need to wake up for, maybe you do the same thing. When I need to make sure that I'm going to wake up for something, you know what I do? I set like 15 alarms, right, to go off. And why am I doing that? Because I'm literally trying to annoy myself into getting out of bed and doing what I know that I need to do, the right thing to do that I know I'm not going to want to do. In other words, I'm using discomfort as a tool to get myself to do what I want to do. In other words, discomfort is then a tool to get me out of my comfort zone so that being in my comfort zone doesn't lead me into the danger zone. And see, that's something that's true for all of us in our lives as well. There's a, there's a direct parallel. See, sometimes being in your comfort zone can be a dangerous place to be. It can lead you. You can drift into the danger zone. But by God's grace, he shows us the way into the hope zone. So what we've been doing the last couple of weeks, and I don't know if you like this, but I like this because it gives us one thought that's easy to memorize. It's easy to think through. It's write down one sentence. So what we've been doing is been taking a sentence, and as we go through the passage, we're breaking that sentence down into three parts. So that's what we're doing today. So let's begin. Uh, our first part of this sentence is this. Sometimes being in our comfort zone can lead us into the danger zone. So let's talk a little bit about the comfort zone, and we'll look at how that applies to Solomon. First Kings chapter 9 begins with these words. Uh, we're, we've been studying the life of King Solomon, right? He says this, when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. Okay, at this point, Solomon has been king of Israel for 24 years. And those whole 24 years, that entire time that he's been king, in fact, even before he became king, in fact, in a way, even before he was even born, there has been this ongoing construction project that has been looming over his life. It's been dominating his life. It's been the only thing he thinks about, works on, is focused on for literally his entire life. This building project, this has been really his life's work. But now he's done. 
The project is completed. There's nothing more to do. Now, I, I would ask you, how many of you guys can relate to that? You've been in a big project. Maybe it was a big project at work or a big project at school, or maybe you did a home renovation, something that consumed all of your time, all of your energy, all of your attention. Maybe you renovated your house, or maybe it was a challenging situation in your family, right? Something stressful, maybe a medical issue that was challenging or stressful, and it just dominated your life for a time. And on the one hand, when that's going on, you cannot wait for it to be over. You're looking forward to the time when it'll be over and you can finally relax and take a breather. But there's an, also another danger involved in that. And the danger is that when you're done, then what do you do? You can be kind of lost when you're done. You come out of one of those seasons. Well, what do I do with myself now that I, I had this thing which always told me what I need to be doing and now I don't? And what are you going to do? And it's actually really important for us in those times in our lives to find something productive to do with our time and our energy. Why? Because comfort can be the enemy of growth. Comfort can be the enemy of growth. Sometimes being in your comfort zone can lead you to drift into the danger zone. And that's what we see here with Solomon exactly. He's completed the temple, and now God speaks to him in a way to give him a warning and to give him a call to, to do something. Check out what it says in verse 3. God says, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you made before me. In chapter 8, we saw the longest prayer in the Bible, the prayer that Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple. And he says, I have consecrated this house, the temple that you have built, by putting my name there forever. Verse 4, as for you, if you will walk before me, as your father David walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. This is the fourth time, by the way, in these nine chapters of 1 Kings that this promise has been reiterated. Now, keep going, though, because he's not done. But, God tells Solomon, if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name, and I will cast, or, and the house I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss and will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought this disaster upon them. Okay, do you realize what God is saying to Solomon? He's saying, Solomon, I'm going to give you a preview of two distinct futures that can be. There are two options for how the future can turn out. And the way that you decide to go is going to determine which of those futures comes to be. Solomon, in other words, is at a crossroads. He's at a fork in the road. He can go this way or he can go that way. And depending on which way he goes, which route he chooses to take, it will determine both his future and the future of many people for many generations to come. So not only uh, is Solomon, right, not only has he spent his entire life dedicated to building the temple and building the palace. And God is saying, Solomon, 
Look, what I really want more than anything is not the work of your hands, but Solomon, what I want is your heart. I want your heart. He says, give me your heart, Solomon. If you will walk with me, then you and future generations will be blessed. But if you don't, if you don't, if you turn away from me in your heart, then I will remove my hand of protection over you and over Israel, and there will be much destruction. Even these buildings you have spent your whole life building, the temple, the palace, they will be destroyed. And God says, I will let them be destroyed. Now, why? Why would God do that? Why would God allow bad things to happen to Israel if he loves them, if he's chosen them? Why would God let bad things happen to them uh, if they turn away from him? Why would God even let this temple be destroyed that he told them how to build? Is God vindictive? Is God petty? Does he say, well, if you're not going to do what I want, then I'm going to let you have it. No, not at all. Not at all. Actually, very different than that. Let me explain. Because there's a pattern that we see. We see it a lot. We're going to see it a lot in First and Second Kings. But we see it really throughout the Bible. And the pattern is, is throughout the Bible because it's, it's true to our human nature. And the pattern is this. When our lives are comfortable and easy, we have a tendency to drift. We have a tendency to drift. See, when, but on the other hand, when there's some kind of trial or crisis or challenge that comes into our lives, those tend to be, and you, you could probably attest to this in your own life, those tend to be the times when we tend to seek God more, when we tend to pray more, when we tend to really be calling out to God more. And here's the deal. God loves you so much. He loves you so much that he cares more about your heart and your relationship with him than he does about your comfort. Right? He loves you. And because he loves you, he is willing to do whatever it takes to get your attention and draw you back to him. Even if that means allowing hardships and challenges into your life. Even if it means, in Israel's case, allowing even this great temple to eventually be destroyed. That's what God is saying. So throughout the Bible, we see examples of this. How God will allow times of trial and hardship and challenge and difficulty into the lives of the people he loves because he loves them. See, when our lives are comfortable, we have a tendency to drift. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says this, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, right? The word, the teaching of God, lest we drift away from it. Think about drifting, right? That's a, that's a very vivid word picture, isn't it? Imagine that you're out in a boat. Maybe you're out on a lake. Maybe you're out in the sea. You're out on a boat, and there's no waves, right? The water's glass. There's no waves. And because there are no waves, you stop rowing because why, you don't need to row because there's no waves, right? What's going to happen if you stop rowing, even when the water is still? Will you just stay in one place? No, you never stay in one place unless you're anchored down, right? If you stop rowing, even if the water is not wavy, you're not going to stay in one place. What you'll do is you will drift. The wind, the water, they will ever so slightly be moving you in some direction. You may not be able to feel it. You may not notice it right away when it's happening. But after a while, you look up and you realize that you've drifted a long way from where you started out or where you were. And maybe that describes some of you. Maybe that's the story of your life. At one time in your life, you were in a really good place with the Lord, maybe just in, in life in general. But you get comfortable you take your foot off the gas, you stop rowing, and one day you realize that you're no longer where you used to be. You've drifted a long way off. 
See, think about it. What do you have to do in order to drift? What do you do in order to drift? Nothing. See, that's the key. That's it right there. Uh, that's exactly it. The way drifting happens is by doing nothing. If you do nothing, you will drift. If you're out on a boat and there are waves, what do you do when there are waves? You row and you row harder. And guess what? You become focused because you realize that if you don't row and you don't put in the effort, what's going to happen? Those waves are going to push you somewhere where you do not want to go, where you do not intend to end up. But when there are no waves, there can be this illusion. It's easier to let yourself drift when there's no waves because there's this illusion that nothing's going to push you in any direction. You can just stay where you're at forever. But of course, that's not true. That's the whole point of drifting. And guys, the same is true in our lives as well. That's why sometimes being in our comfort zone can lead us into the danger zone because you get to drift. See, comfort can be the enemy of growth. But conversely, challenges, difficulties, hardships, they can be catalysts for growth in our lives. Right? They can be things that cause you to turn to God, to seek him, to depend on him even more. And this is why James says in the book of James chapter 1, Count it all joy when you face various kinds of trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See, James isn't encouraging us to have some kind of morbid obsession with pain, right? We're like, yes, bring it on. Lord, give me more. I like it when it hurts, right? No, he's saying, no, don't be obsessed with pain and like, begging God to hurt you or something, right? No, he's saying is this. When you experience these things in your life, you can be glad because this, you can know with eager expectation that God is going to use this thing in your life for good to accomplish his purposes in your life. See, one of the things that we often say to you here at Whitefields, we have this kind of mantra, right? Our mantra um, among many is that we always say, if you're a member of our church, we want you to do two things. We want you to, number one, join a group, and number two, join a team. Join a group, join a team. We say that over and over. Why? Here's why. Because we sincerely believe, honestly, wholeheartedly, sincerely, sincerely believe that in order for you to grow and not drift, you need a little discomfort in your life. You need a little discomfort in your life. You need to get out of your comfort zone and join a community group. We say, oh, well, I, I don't like people. I know, exactly. That's why you need to join a community group, right? You need to get together with some people, know them, let them know you, study the Bible, have them pray for you, you pray for them, use your gifts, get involved with people. You need to discomfort yourself in order to grow. It's essential. You need to discomfort yourself and get out there and serve people. You know why? Because we follow somebody who was the greatest servant who ever lived. And we want to become like him. We follow the one who gave up the comfort of heaven in order to serve us and save us through the ultimate discomfort of the cross. See, we need these regular discomforts of giving, right? That's what all spiritual disciplines are in a way. They're like spiritual discomforts that you bring into your life on purpose in order to grow, right? So giving, serving, uh, attending, right, in order to protect us, why? From drifting into the danger zone. And that, that's the second thing we see here in Solomon's life in this chapter is that sometimes being in our comfort zone can lead us into the danger zone as we drift. So the, the rest of chapter 9 tells us about Solomon's business dealings. And so we're going to kind of go through these sections in broader strokes because it's so long. But here's the deal. You can call this section from verses uh, 10 through 28 in chapter 9, you could call it Solomon's shrewd 
but shady business dealings. That's what this is. Solomon's shrewd and yet shady business dealings. From verses 10 through 14, we read that Solomon made a kind of a deal with Hiram, the king of Tyre. That's modern day Lebanon. So just to the north of Israel. And he made a deal with them. You might remember this from a few chapters ago that Hiram and Tyre, they would give cedar wood and gold to help build the temple. And in return, Solomon promised to transfer to them 20 cities from Galilee, northern Israel, kind of probably a bordering area. He would transfer to them uh, from the kingdom of Israel to the kingdom of Tyre. He would give them 20 cities. So what happens here is, okay, temple's done. Hiram's like, okay, let's have those cities now. So Solomon says, yeah, perfect. I, uh, I already transferred them over to you, right? So uh, Hiram goes and he looks at these cities that Solomon gave him, and he is not impressed. He's very disappointed. And he actually calls them Kabul, which means good for nothing, right? Like, these are the worst cities. These are the dumpiest towns you could have possibly given me. Now, so on the one hand, Solomon is shrewd, but he's also a little bit shady, isn't he, right? Because on the one hand, he's smart because he gave away wasteland in exchange for materials for the temple. But on the other hand, it does seem like he was a little bit dishonest in this exchange. But secondly, and here's the thing that gets me, isn't it kind of weird that Solomon's giving away the promised land, right? Like this is the land that God had chosen to give them and said, like, this is the land that I'm going to give to you and your descendants. Occupy it, you know, uh, live in it. And now Solomon is giving some of it away. It seems like the opposite of what he's supposed to be doing as a leader of God's people. Okay, the next business deal happens in verses 15 through 22 of chapter 9, where Solomon, essentially, here's what he does. There are these remaining Canaanites there in the land of Israel, and Solomon makes them become forced laborers for the Israelites. And originally, it says there, he had hired them to work in the temple uh, to build it and all that. But now that the project's finished, what is he going to do with them? Instead of just letting them go, he makes them into slaves. Now, again, this is another example of Solomon doing something that might be shrewd from a financial perspective, but it seems quite unethical and really kind of shady, right? This is, and, and on top of that, this is not what God had told the people to do. God had told the people of Israel to go into land, occupy it, drive out the Canaanites outside the borders, not to make them slaves. So again, this is a time, another example of Solomon not doing what God had wanted him to do. And finally, from verses 25 through 28, we see some of the alliances that Solomon made with other nations. And again, we, we contrast this with David, who was, who was a warrior king. We see that Solomon is, is a guy whose life is really characterized by compromise. So much compromise. Some of it's good, but then on the other hand, you have to wonder, where is that line where not only is he compromising with other nations, he's also compromising in a lot of areas and crossing that line that shouldn't be crossed. And he does it essentially to increase his wealth and power, which he's already like super wealthy, super powerful, but apparently he wants more. In, in 1 Kings chapter 10 from verses 1 through 13, going on, we see the story of the queen of Sheba coming to visit Solomon. This is a very famous story. It says in verse 1 of chapter 10, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Sheba is a kingdom we know from archaeology. It's in modern day Yemen. So right there at the tip of the Arabian Peninsula, very close to the Horn of Africa. And so she comes and the questions that she brings, you know, it wasn't really like a, a stump the chump kind of thing, right? Like she's giving him riddles to see if he can figure them out just 
just for fun. More likely, based on the whole story here, she was coming to him with kind of diplomatic and ethical questions to see if Solomon would be a good business partner so they could make kind of a trade deal between their two kingdoms or two countries. And in the end, the Queen of Sheba is so impressed with Solomon, so impressed with Jerusalem that she says this, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. So we're not sure really, uh, what this means, right? Does this mean that the Queen of Sheba actually was converted during this trip and became a believer in the true and living God and a follower of the Lord? A lot of people would say yes. It could be that she's just being polite. On the other hand, though, there, there is some evidence to say that, that actually she was converted. And, and that is because there are people who live in that region of where near, you know, the end of the Arabian Peninsula into the Horn of Africa, who traditionally became Jewish. And they were not, not ethnically Jewish people who moved down there. They were local people who followed Judaism. Uh, even some people there to this day, mostly in the Horn of Africa. Now, on the other hand, though, it's really important that we realize this was God's intent and desire all along. This was his design for the people of Israel, that they would be a beacon of light to the nations, that other nations would see them, and they would see the beauty of their society. And at one point, God says that they would see the beauty of the law, and they would be drawn to the light of God through that. They would see this unique, beautiful society created by God, and they would be drawn to it. And as they were drawn to it, they would come to trust in and follow the Lord. And that's the same effect that Jesus says, like in Matthew chapter 5, that he wants us as his people to have, right? So us as individuals, you as a, a family, us as a church, that we would have that salt and light effect in our communities, that our actions would draw people to the light of God's glory and cause them to trust in him and believe in him. Now, when Jesus talked to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, he brought up the Queen of Sheba. Maybe you remember the story. Jesus says to the Pharisees, the queen of the south, right? That's the queen of Sheba. Will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Here's why. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The, the Jewish people looked up to the Queen of Sheba. They admired her as a seeker of truth. And Jesus is telling these Pharisees, hey, look, if you guys admire the Queen of Sheba, then you should act like her. You should act like her because the greater than Solomon, the descendant of Solomon, the one Solomon pointed to, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is here right now, the eternal king. So give heed to his words and what he says. So Solomon, the Queen of Sheba, they make this trade deal between their respective kingdoms. And what this shows us really is this. Under Solomon's leadership, Israel has now become a major world power. They started out as a nation of slaves. Look where they've come from. They spent years wandering in the wilderness without a homeland. They, they lived in tents as shepherds and farmers and nomads. But now they finally arrived on the world stage. Now they live in cities. They have palaces. They are the envy of all the world. No longer do they have to fear being attacked by their neighbors. They can finally sit back and relax. But the problem is, guys, sometimes 
your comfort zone. Being in your comfort zone can lead you to drift into the danger zone. And from verses 14 to 29 of chapter 10, just look at it. It talks about how rich and powerful Solomon was. Interesting verse here in chapter 14. It says, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. And I know some of you guys, like your eyes are like, 666, I know that number. That's from Revelation. That's the number of the beast. Guess what, guys? This is the only place in the Bible other than Revelation that that number is found. What does that mean? Why is it here? Well, if you want to know, Pastor Mike and I are going to talk about it on Tuesday in our Sermon Extra video that we do every week. So this is a shameless plug for you to watch that video because for the sake of time, we're going to move on. And we're going to really focus on the point of this chapter, but I do want to talk about that. So we're going to talk about it this week on our Sermon Extra video, so make sure to tune in for that. It comes out on Tuesday. The point of this section, really, more than anything, is this. It wants us to see how incredibly wealthy Solomon was. 666 talents of gold is about $300 million. And remember, this is Solomon's base salary. If you read the rest of the section, it tells us that was kind of his base salary. And on top of that, he had a lot of income from other streams as well. So he made a lot, a lot of money, and he had no expenses. Right, So it tells us also about his incredible military might after that. He had a navy. He had a huge fleet of chariots and horses. Now, why is that important? Here's why, and this is the point. Because in Deuteronomy 17, God had specifically said that the kings of Israel were not allowed to do three things. Three things. Number one, they were not allowed to accumulate much gold for themselves. That's literally what he's doing, right? The other thing they were not allowed to do, they were not allowed to accumulate militaries, big ones. You could have some money. And you could have some military, but you weren't supposed to just amass it. Now Solomon here, he's building up, you know, some of the most money in the world, some of the biggest armies in the world. And this is directly in contrast with what God had said. And why had God said that? Why? Because he wanted his people to have what they needed, but still need to trust in him. Still need to trust in him for protection and security. So there was one other thing that God said not to do in Deuteronomy 17, and that is that they were not allowed to accumulate many wives. And if you know about Solomon, you know that is exactly what he did. It's almost like Solomon read Deuteronomy 17 and said, those are some good ideas. I'm going to go do them, right? Like he said, I'm going to do all these things. And he's deliberately disobeying God's commands. And I just want you to see that this has been a drift in Solomon's life. It didn't happen overnight. This has been a drifting away from the Lord over time, a drifting into disobedience, a drifting into the danger zone. At the beginning of chapter 9, like we just saw, God warned him. He said, Solomon, watch out. All this success, all this comfort, all this ease, it poses a threat to your soul. Make sure that you don't drift. And it's like all these alarm bells are going off, right? It's like he's got 15 alarms set on his phone to wake up in the morning. And Solomon just keeps hitting the snooze button and hitting the snooze button and hitting the snooze button over and over and over. And as we're going to see next week, he keeps hitting the snooze button until it's too late. And so the question is, what can we do? What can you and I do in order to avoid making the same mistake that Solomon made? And that brings us to our, our third and final part of this statement we made at the beginning. Sometimes being in our comfort zone can lead us into the danger zone. But by God's grace, he shows us the way into the hope zone. What these chapters tell us about Solomon is that he was incredibly successful and incredibly wealthy. And yet in spite of 
his wealth, in spite of his success, you know what else about Solomon? He was absolutely miserable. He was miserable. How do I know that? I know that because he said so himself. You know where he said so? He wrote a book. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in your Bible. For a lot of people, when they read it for the first time without any context, they find the book really confusing. They say, this book is really kind of pessimistic, and the writer seems really jaded. Like, why is this in the Bible? There's a great reason why it's in the Bible. See, in this book, Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells the story of his search for fulfillment in this world apart from God. His search for fulfillment in the world apart from God. And here, here's what he says. He says, he goes through the list. He says, you know, I sought fulfillment in money and material possessions. And I accumulated more money than perhaps anybody else ever, right? Like I had more money than I could even count. And then, and he says, but you know what? It was a waste of time. It was empty. It was worthless. Uh, I thought it would fulfill me, but it didn't. Then he says, so I moved on to the next thing. You know what that was? He says, I sought fulfillment in knowledge. I, I studied, I studied philosophy. I studied math. I studied science. I studied everything. And he says, you know what? That, that studying, that knowledge didn't fill the void that I felt in my soul. He says, so I decided I'm just going to have fun. So he, he spent all this money having all these wild parties. They would bring in, it says, exotic animals from Africa, right? Like baboons and like peacocks and all kinds of interesting animals. And he would have these exotic parties and he, they, it would do all these things. And he said, you know what? Having fun didn't fill the emptiness in my soul either. He says, so I sought it in power. I sought to become the most powerful person in the world. And then I sought it through romantic relationships. But nothing I tried could ever fulfill that sense of, of unfulfilledness, that, that void that existed in my soul. And he said, you know what? At the end of the day, I had everything, and yet I was absolutely miserable. And you say, well, that is depressing. And yeah, it is. And actually, if you feel depressed after reading that book, then you got the point. Because for many people, they read that and they're, they're like, where's the solution? Where, where's the solution to this problem? It, it only brings up a problem. It doesn't give me a solution. Again, that's the point. The, the book ends by saying, Solomon says this at the end, I guess all that really matters in life is just to serve God and to do what is right. Well, that's not a bad answer, but look at Solomon's life. He didn't even do that. He says, well, I guess this is all it amounts to. And he himself didn't even do that thing. You see, in other words, Solomon had everything this world has to offer, and yet he was miserable. How is that possible, right? We often think, if I just had that thing, if I just had that other thing, right? As soon as I get this, then I'm going to be good. Then I'll be fine. The book of Ecclesiastes stands there as a testament to say, no, take it from a guy who literally had everything, and he was still completely empty inside. Here's what Jesus said. What does it benefit a person if they gain the whole world and yet lose their soul. In the Gospels, we actually read about a time when Jesus met somebody who was very similar to Solomon, and he came and talked with Jesus. This person, we call him, we don't know his name, we call him the rich young ruler, because he was all those things. He had money, he had youth, and he had power. And yet, like Solomon, he sensed that this itself was not enough. Something was missing. And here's why we know that, because he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I've got all this stuff, but what must I do in order to have eternal life? And I love this phrase. You can check it out. It says in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He looked at him and he loved him and he spoke out of that love. And Jesus said, looking at him and loving him, 
Go, sell all that you have, give the money to the poor, and you come and follow me. Now that's interesting because Jesus never told anybody else to do that. He did, this wasn't like a regular thing that you had to do in order to follow Jesus. So why did he tell this guy to go and sell everything he had? This guy who had so much. It seems to be a lot to ask. Why? Because Jesus looked in this guy's heart and he loved him. And he could see that this, this guy's possessions and his power, those are the things that this guy was looking to and trusting in to give him comfort and security. And Jesus could see that these things that he was finding comfort in, his comfort zone, was actually a barrier between him and God. It was a barrier between him and God. And so Jesus challenged him to step out of his comfort zone, step out of his comfort zone and put himself in a position where he would have to trust God and cling to God. But sadly, that story ends kind of like Solomon's. The man was unwilling to do that. And it says he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Guys, how do we avoid falling into the same trap that Solomon fell into, that the rich young ruler fell into, where we let our comfort zone lead us into the danger zone? Well, here's how. Jesus said this. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will find it. See, the way out of the danger zone and into the hope zone, here it is. You need to let go of those things that you have been trusting in and clinging to, which have created a barrier between you and God. You know what those things are in your life. They're going to be different for each of us, but you know what they are. You give up, you let go of those things that you've been clinging to and trusting in that have created a barrier between you and God, and you surrender your life fully to him, to him who gave his life for you. Putting your trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross. Guys, do you know when the Bible says, when the Bible talks about believing in Jesus in order to receive salvation, what does that mean? Does that just mean that, that we believe that he was a real person who actually lived at some point in time? Well, every, everybody believes that. I mean, Satan believes that. He's not a Christian, right? It, does it mean believing that Jesus really died on a cross, that he really rose from the grave? Those are historical facts. A lot, of, a lot of historians and archaeologists don't even dispute those things. See, just believing in the existence or believing that the facts took place historically, that doesn't actually do anything for you. You know, when the Bible uses this word believe, that word to believe in Jesus in order to receive salvation, that word believe, think about it like this. Here's what it means. To trust in to cling to, to adhere to, right? To rely on something. So when we're talking about Jesus, what it means to believe in him in order to receive salvation, it means that you look to Jesus, you see what he did on the cross. And rather than trusting in and relying on and clinging to yourself or anyone or anything, you trust in and rely on and cling to Jesus and what he did on the cross in order to save you. Because here's, here's the good news of the gospel. He, Jesus, this man, he lived the life that you and I should have lived, that life of perfect obedience to God. And he died the death 
that you and I should have died. On the cross, he took the judgment for your sins, right? The things that you and I deserve to receive from God. He took that, the, the sins, the failures, the mistakes, the judgment that we deserve because of that. He took it upon himself as he was nailed to the cross. Why? So that you can be forgiven, so you can be embraced by God, so you can be brought into God's family and given the gift of eternal life in in the life to come, but also to receive relationship with God here and now. And so right now, we're going to take communion. And, and as we do that, this is our way of expressing that we believe this, right? We trust in, we rely on, we, we cling to what Jesus did for us. It's our way of, of saying we receive this gift of God's grace and we receive it by faith. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.